0: So, my name is Jason Webster. I am the pastoral resident, not intern. I was going to say intern. Apparently there's a difference. I am a resident. Um, for those of you who don't know much about me, uh, a little bit about myself. A year and a half ago, I married my best friend, Jone. Uh We've been having, thank you, a wonderful year and a half uh, living here in Yakima and in Chicago. Because uh, in May, I graduated from Moody Bible Institute in Chicago. Uh, with a BA in Pastoral Studies and in Bible. Uh, so Kevin's been kind of just letting me hang around here the last couple of months since June, uh, and I'm going to hang around for a little bit more, so you'll probably see more of me if you don't like it. I'm sorry. Uh, and, and so Kevin's given me the pulpit today, so if you, wanna hear, you came to hear him talk, uh, just talk to him after the service. I know he always has a lot to say. Uh, so, uh, let's just pray and we'll get started in our time in the Word. Father, we just come before you now, desiring to hear your word, desiring for your spirit to teach us. So, Father, just open our hearts, open our ears to hear. Father, use what I have prepared for your glory, that you may be glorified through the preaching of your word. In Jesus' name, amen. So I want to start out with a question. It's a very, very serious question. How many of you have been or still are a child? Let's raise our hands. If you've been a child or you still are a child. Cameron, I want you to, there you go. <laughs> so, uh, we've all had this shared experience of childhood. And and sometimes it's best experienced once you're an adult and you're playing around with children. And what comes with childhood is childhood wisdom. And um, and so <clears throat> even, even Paul says that in, in 1 Corinthians 13, he talks about when I was a child, I used to think like a child. I used to reason like a child. There's childhood wisdom. And this is best expressed in my life uh, through Annika. See, Annika is my wife's cousin's Three-year-old daughter, and she is the cutest three-year-old you'll ever see in your life. And so, this little girl, we were visiting some family over there, and so I went out and back to play with the children because she's so stinking cute. I just had to go play with her. And so I go out there, and we, she wanted to play hide and go seek. And so she's like, "Okay, you hide, and I'll go find you." And then so she gives me about a three-second head start, and then turns around and says, "I found you." And then okay okay your turn and then so she runs over somewhere and tries to hide i give her a little bit more time and so her idea of hiding is kind of putting her face up against something and the wisdom here is that it, it, she thinks if if i can't see him he can't see me right and so so there's this wisdom she says if i can't see him he can't see me and so she's hiding and playing sight covering her face and and so i kind of you know walk around. She's right in front of me. I'm like, where's Annika? Where is she? And then she'll, you know, come up. I'm right here! And she'll get all excited and then do it over and over again. And so there's this, you know, childhood wisdom of, 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 of if I can't see him, he can't see me. Then you get a little bit older. And if you're like me, you like bikes and you like making bike jumps. And, and so, you know, you're about seven to ten years old and you're like, hey, here's a good idea. Let's take a piece of plywood angle it up with some two-by-fours in the dirt and see if we can get in the air on our bike, right? And so, so you know, we, we, we take this this plywood and we set up this jump. And, and the thinking, the wisdom here is if I ride really, really fast, I'm going to get in the air and it's going to be awesome. And so I get on my bike and I start riding towards this ramp. And it's not until I'm right before I hit it that I think, well, what happens now like what happens when i'm in the air i don't know how to land i don't know what to do with this thing when i'm in the air and so i i would usually end up kind of jumping off at the last second or give this like half effort towards the end of it and then fall off and you know get scraped up in the dirt Uh, and only to be back on it again two minutes later thinking oh i know what i did wrong and then i tried again and again but i always seemed to fail This childhood wisdom that doesn't think through things all the way. But it it doesn't stop there. It goes into high school. And there's this high schooler wisdom that your mom says, Hey, be home by 10.30. You're like, Hey, Mom, I'll be home by 10.30. And then 10.40 rolls around, and you're coming home. You're like, Mama, let me explain. And you have this wisdom that says, Well, I know this is what you said, but I thought that I could do this. And if you uh, didn't know, that was definitely a personal story. Which I was grounded for a week. <clears throat> so this is, this is what I call childhood wisdom. And the thing is is that even as adults, even as adults, we all seek wisdom. We all seek wisdom. And, uh, and we all use wisdom every day. See, to not use wisdom is to not do anything. Because there's a distinction between wisdom and knowledge. See, knowledge is just information. It's information. You know stuff about a certain topic, but, but it just sits there. It doesn't actually do anything. It just sits there and see wisdom. Wisdom is applying knowledge. It's wisdom it is knowledge in motion. And it's this idea of applying what you know to life. It's applying what you know to life. Or, or what you believe about what you know. Uh, because just because we know something, it doesn't always mean we act that way. We have these irrational fears that even though we know something to be true, we don't always act in wisdom out of that because of fears or something. So I like to say it's, it's what we believe about what we know. And that's—so wisdom is— Applying what we believe about what we know to life. And so a quick example of this. uh, Your stomach's really, really hungry. You know that your stomach is hungry because it's grumbling. You also know that a ham sandwich would stop that. See, that's just knowledge on its own. It doesn't do anything. It just knows that the ham sandwich would do that. So in wisdom... You act upon that knowledge and you make yourself a delicious ham sandwich. So there's a distinction between knowledge itself and knowing how to apply it through wisdom. So then it comes to this question. But to ask ourselves, where are we getting our wisdom from? Where are we getting our wisdom from? And, and that's what James will be talking about uh, today in James chapter 3, 13 through 18, we have been in this series going through James called A Life, A Faith Worth Living, A Faith Worth Living, and so we are continuing that series today in James chapter 3, 13 through 18. If you do not have a Bible, just raise your hand and ask in the back, we'll give you a Bible. If you do not own a Bible, please keep this Bible because we believe here at Restoration Church that it's important for you to be in the scriptures on your own. James chapter 3, 13 through 18. And so he starts off with this question. Who is wise and understanding among you? Who is wise and understanding among you? And if we're just picking this up and reading, we're like, uh, me? Like, duh, I'm wise. Like, I'm the definition of wise. If you looked it up in the dictionary, you'd probably see a picture of my face. And so we're like, "Yeah, of course I'm wise, especially when someone challenges our wisdom, then we're like, uh, yeah, I'm wise." And we try to act super wise around that person, and, and, and understanding, and understanding and knowledge are often interchangeable. Understanding like, yeah, I, I understand all things. I mean, except for women, but other than that, like I understand all things, of course, that's me. and And the people James is writing to. The people James is writing to would probably answer about the same. See, so if we look back in chapter 3, verse 1, which Kevin covered last week, he starts off with saying, not many of you should become teachers. And the reason he's saying that is because many of them wanted to become teachers. They desired the role. They desired leadership. Everyone wanted their PhD. They wanted to be in front of people speaking. Which, there could be mixed motives on that. Maybe it's because they actually want to be there. They desire to serve the Lord. But some people really just want to hear themselves talk. They want these positions so they can be in power. But but he, he says it in a way. He says, who is wise and understanding? Putting wisdom first. And I think this is important because... He he doesn't want just knowledge. Because he knows that knowledge on itself can be dangerous. There's a danger in just knowing things. And I have seen this firsthand at Bible school. When when students get pumped, filled with just knowledge of the word, but they don't know how to use it. It becomes dangerous. And and I've seen it on social media over and over again on how, how people will get in these arguments of these deep theological issues. They will just tear each other apart. And so James understands this. So he's not just saying who has knowledge, but who has the wisdom to apply the knowledge. He would rather us be wise than just knowledgeable. So then he continues in the end of uh, verse 13 by saying, By his good conduct, let him show his works in the meekness of wisdom. He is essentially uh, um, saying the same thing as is in uh, chapter 2, verse 14. Chapter 2, verse 14, which we covered a couple weeks ago, he's saying, what good is it, my brothers, if you say you have faith but not works? He's saying, what good is it if you say you have faith and not works? And here I think he's repeating the same idea of, what good is it to say you have knowledge without wisdom? What good is it to have knowledge without wisdom? What good is it to have the knowledge of the faith without the wisdom to live the faith? And see in the end of that verse, he's saying uh, to show your good works in the meekness of wisdom. I mean, he doesn't show us; he doesn't tell us to show our our our, our knowledge. I mean, that would be easy in, in Bible circles. So it's just like quoting scripture. You're like you're angry. Well, I, James James chapter one nineteen says. Not to be angry easily, so you you probably shouldn't be angry right now. Or or someone's upset, and you're like, well, well, 2 Corinthians 1-3 says that God is the God of all comfort. So why be upset? Why be depressed? Why, Why would you do that when the Bible tells us not to? I mean, that's showing our knowledge of the Bible without being able to apply it properly through wisdom. And so we're coming back to this idea of where do we get our wisdom? And James is going to give us our options here in this text. See, it's either you have earthly wisdom or you're going to have heavenly wisdom. Earthly wisdom or heavenly wisdom. And he's going to cover earthly wisdom first. So for each of these, we're going to cover the heart posture, where it is rooted, And what is the result? The heart posture, the root of this wisdom, and what is the result of using this wisdom? So please read with me verse 14. For he says, earthly wisdom is corrupt. Earthly wisdom is corrupt. Verse 14. But if you have bitter jealousy and selfish ambition in your hearts, do not boast and be false to the truth. And so he starts off with the heart posture of earthly wisdom. The heart posture is that it's all about me. It is all about me. And we should have a picture. He says that it is all about me. And he starts off with saying this bitter jealousy. See the word jealous. Comes from the word zelos in the Greek, which, which is where we get our word zeal. Maybe you've heard that before. Uh, zeal on its own. Zeal is, is this, uh, it, it's based off the mimicking of water bubbling from heat. And there's this image uh, of water boiling. So there's this hotness, this, this aggressiveness. But on its own, it's not a bad thing. It's it's a neutral term, so it can be good. I mean, maybe you've heard someone say, oh man, that guy's on fire for the Lord. He's zealous for the Lord. He's filled with the Spirit. So zealousness on its own isn't bad. But here, there's the word bitter in front of it. And so you have this bitter zealousness, this bitter jealousy towards another person. You are bitterly jealous for somebody else. Why? Because of selfish ambition. Because of selfish ambition. This is the desire to make ourselves look good. We want ourselves to look better than other people. This means that when you're not looking good, you act out. You act out towards other people because they're doing better than you. You know, your coworker does better on a project and he gets a raise. You are bitterly jealous towards him because your selfish ambition says that I need to look better than him. And so what you do is you act out against him. It may be you, you lash out next time you see him. You say choice words that later you wish you didn't say, but you act out against him. Because he's doing better than you. He's not making you look good. Maybe someone says a demeaning comment. and So you go right back and make sure that what you say about them is worse than what they just said about you. Selfish ambition. Earthly wisdom says that it's your job to make sure they look worse than you. That you look better. Selfish ambition. Make sure that I look better. I'm getting put forward. I am doing more. Me, me, me. It's all about me. It says it's all about me. I have to look good. I mean, is this not the wisdom that we see around us in the world? I mean, if you've watched the debates, the presidential debates... Uh, you can just sit there and, and watch them, and they don't answer the question. They just want to make sure the other person looks worse than them so that you'll vote for them. I mean, they're using this selfish ambition to say, It's all about me. This person's done worse than me, so I look better. And he's saying, If you have this selfish ambition and this bitterness towards others, do not boast. Do not boast. I mean, again, boasting on its own is not a bad thing. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 1.31, let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. And and boasting is this idea of speaking loudly. And sometimes it can be an arrogance to be proud of something you have, proud of something you have done, have been a part of, or something connected to you. And so, boasting in the Lord. Boasting in the Lord would be boasting in the Lord about something he has done. Something that he has. Something that he has been a part of. So by all means, boast in the Lord. Boast that the Lord has saved you. That he has taken the guilt out of your life. That he is using you to build up his kingdom. Boast in the Lord. But when you're acting in selfish ambition, that's not how we boast. We're not going to be boasting in the Lord. We're going to be boasting in ourselves. And a good check of this is how often do you come up in your conversations? How often do you talk about yourself? I see it. My my brother had a friend. And he he came back from college, and he has all these stories. And he would always talk about this friend that always had to one-up someone else's story. So they talk about how, oh, they were, you know, taking a walk, and and this this marmot, this, like, small animal came up and started chasing them. And so they ran away from it. And then this guy would immediately jump in with the story of how he was getting chased by a cougar. Just, like, these ridiculous details. You're like, there's no way that could have happened. But he has to one-up. He has to make himself look better. And so he's always telling this story. And so in that, he's making him look better than the other person. But it gets worse than that. Often what happens is we take away from God's kingdom to build our own. We take away from God's kingdom and what God is doing and add it to our kingdom. See, when this happens, we're talking about, well, my church— I mean, this is my church. This is my small group. I am the leader of my small group. And I take credit for everything that happens in that small group. Or, this is my service project. I started this service project. And so I get all the, benefit, all the things that happen out of this service project credited to me. Again, me, me, me. It's all about me. So we boast to build up our own kingdom. And we take it away from God's kingdom. This is why earthly wisdom is corrupt. But it continues. Verse 15. Read with me verse 15. See, this is not the wisdom that comes down from above, but is earthly, unspiritual, and demonic. So, 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 so we've covered the heart posture, that it's all about me. And then now we're moving on to where is earthly wisdom rooted? What is the root of earthly wisdom? And he gives these three things. First, earthly, which we are talking about. We're considering it earthly wisdom. See, earthly wisdom is the wisdom of man. It's the wisdom that man comes up with. It's something that's right in front of them. We see and we react And if it's not having to do with this world, you can't use it in earthly wisdom. Which means that God cannot be a part of it. And he solidifies that by saying, in fact, it's not just earthly, it's unspiritual. It takes God completely out of the equation. It has nothing to do with faith. And it's completely void of the Spirit. And he takes it even further. He's actually, actually, this, this wisdom is, is demonic. This wisdom is demonic. And, and he's, I mean, he's not afraid to go there. I might just kind of stop it. Yeah, that's, that's pretty bad stuff. But he, he goes straight down to the root. The very root of it is that it's demonic. Meaning that it's the same wisdom that the demons use. See, see the demons, they know God's word. In fact, they know it better than any of us in this room. They know what it says. And, and, and on top of that, they know the authority of God. See, if, if we look at the parable, or, or when, when Jesus crosses the Sea of Galilee, and there's the demonic man, and, and the demons named Legion, they come, oh, they say, oh, Son of the Most High, do not cast us into the abyss. Because they know he has the power to do it. They know Jesus has the power to destroy them completely. But they don't act in wisdom upon that knowledge. They deny him as worshiping him as Lord. Why? Well, to convince us. They want to convince us of the same thing. Because if we doubt God then we're going to doubt his word. Then we're going to doubt his authority. They want us to doubt God's authority. And and, and often we do the same thing. We know the, the word of God. We know what it says to do. But we don't do it. We sit back and act as if God doesn't have authority in our lives. When in fact, he's the only authority. he, He is the only authority we are to have. There is nothing compared to the worth of God's word. Because this, in the end, is the ultimate authority. Whether you believe it or not, this has the final say. And I think often we think, well, well, God hasn't been speaking to me. God isn't talking to me. I can't feel his presence. Why isn't he talking to me? Well, he, he already has. He wrote 66 books to you. Just pick up the word and read it as the authority of your life. Demons do not believe this. And earthly wisdom is rooted in the denial of the authority of Scripture. The denial of the authority of God's Word. Are we living under this authority? So so earthly wisdom is rooted in the denial of the authority of Scripture. So what are the results? What are the results of earthly wisdom? Going back to the end of verse 14, he says, Do not boast and be false to the truth. And that's the, the first result, is earthly wisdom makes you false to the truth. So you cannot be actively living out or earthly wisdom and be true to the truth. Because it makes you false to the truth. It discredits your claim to truth. See, so we look, it's this paradoxical idea that, that, that we, we're going to live as if it's all about me, but then turn around and try and tell someone that it's all about Christ. We're going to live as if I'm trying to put myself further, push others back, and then try and share the gospel of humility and sacrifice. It, it makes you false to the truth. You can't live in such a way that you say it's all about me and be true to the truth that it's not. So then he continues with two more in verse 16. Verse 16. For where jealousy and selfish ambition exist, there will be disorder in every vile practice, or every evil practice, as, as some translate it. So he says disorder. Disorder is, is confusion. It's this confusion, the inability to stand. It represents like this crumbling cookie. And that's exactly what it is. It, it, disorder is. Is this crumbling cookie before God. I mean, what is disorder but trying to live your life without God? Your life falls apart. And we like to say, "I, I can. I can. You know, I can fix my marriage. I can. I can turn my life around. When in fact, we can't. We can't do that. And we like to say, I will. I, I will. You know, I, I will stop using drugs. I, I will stop looking at pornography, when in fact, we will not. Because we do not have the power to do so. We don't have the power. It's only in Christ. And then he says, every vile practice. See, in the end of Judges chapter 17, it says, there was no king in Israel, and everyone did what was right in their own eyes. There was no king in Israel, and everyone did what was right in their own eyes. I mean, this is every vile practice. We make up our own standards for morality. We make up our own standards for what is right and what is wrong. Every Vile practice. And see, when we're doing this, we take Jesus off the throne and place ourselves in righteous rule. We say, Jesus has no authority. I have the authority to say what is right and what is wrong. Earthly wisdom is corrupt. It only leads to being false to the truth. Having disorder in our lives, crumbling before God. And leads us to putting ourselves on the throne. And see, we we may say that, well, we have good standards, moral standards. Like, I don't believe it's good to murder. You know, I I don't believe that it's okay to steal. But When someone gets shot and dies... What do you do in your heart? I mean, most of the times we're like, oh, I'm glad I wasn't there. I'm glad that this didn't affect me. I mean, isn't that the same wisdom being applied? We're just worried about ourselves in these situations often. You know, or we're the homeless around downtown Yakima. We, we try to avoid them because either it's, it's scary to see them or we just want to ignore their existence and we say well at least that's not me who's homeless at least it's not me who's affected here it's the same heart issue so so earthly wisdom has this heart posture that says it's all about me it's rooted in the demonic thought of denying the authority of god's word And it leaves us only to crumble in a mess before God. So what does James say about heavenly wisdom? Let's read 17 through 18. 17 through 18. But the wisdom from above is first pure, then peaceable, gentle, open to reason, full of mercy and good fruits, impartial and sincere. And a harvest of righteousness is sown in peace by those who make peace. So what he's saying here is heavenly wisdom is incorruptible. Heavenly wisdom is incorruptible. And it has this heart posture that says it's not about me. It's not about me. There it is. I don't know how that got there. It just showed up one day, and I was like, hey, I'm going to use this. (laughs) Sorry, Kevin. (laughs) So there's this heart posture that says, it's not about me. And he gives this list of things that I'm going to try and cover uh, pretty quick because it's quite a long list. So he starts with, with Purity. So I think he starts with this because essentially it's, it's the opposite of earthly wisdom. Because to be pure means that it's not corrupted. It's not mixed with other agendas. It's not watered down. It is pure. It is pure. Having no flaw. Then he says it's peaceable. When we think of peace, we often think that it talks about, oh, well, there's no, like, major war going on. Me and my wife aren't fighting all the time over these huge issues, so we have peace. But peace takes it a lot further than that. See, peace has, has to do uh, with the opposite of disorder as seen in 1 Corinthians fourteen forty four. It says, God is not a God of confusion, but a God of peace. And he's not tying two different things. He's, he's giving a contrast. That God's not a God of confusion or disorder, but a God of peace. Which means wholeness and unity. Peace means a wholeness and a unity. And when you're living with a heart posture of peace, you're able to bring wholeness to a situation. You're able to bring unity to the situations around you. And he says, gentle. Gentle is essentially the same thing as meekness in verse 13. Uh, Essentially, humility. You're going to have humility. And then open to reason. This is the one that really got me. When I think of open to reason, I kind of think of this like, uh, like, uh, I'm open to what he has to say. I'm open to what she has to say. Like, I could be wrong in this sense. But that's not what it means. It really means compliance. A compliance to the scripture. It means you are easy to obey what scripture says. Easy to obey what scripture says. So you look back at James 1.19. When you're open to reason, you are quick to hear scripture. Slow to speak and slow to anger. Quick to hear scripture. He says, full of mercy and good fruits. Again, it's not about me. It's not about me. Treating people with compassion. And you're going to forgive those who have sinned against you. And then the good fruits, you're going to take it a little further. Maybe you bake them some cookies. So that they can really see that you have forgiven them. And that you aren't centered on yourself. There's going to be good fruits coming out of the mercy and compassion that you have for those around you. It says impartial. Heavenly wisdom is undivided. It is impartial. And it's also sincere. See, how often do we have these Hidden motives in what we do. We're doing this good work, we're doing this service project, but we do it because we want to look good. We do it because we want people to notice what we are doing. But heavenly wisdom doesn't act with hidden agendas. It is sincere and upfront with what it is doing. It's not about me. So the initial question is: who is wise among you? Who is wise among you? And James says this. This is one who is wise. This is one. The one who uses heavenly wisdom. See, when James is speaking of wisdom here, this is how he would define it. A skill for applying scripture to life. Having a skill for living and applying God's word. That is true wisdom. That we can apply God's word to our life, to the situations around us. That is true wisdom. So how do we acquire this wisdom? What is it rooted in and and how do we acquire the ability to use this wisdom? Well, first we have to know God. I mean, you can't use the wisdom of God if you don't know God. And that's essentially uh, the the gospel, you know. No one is righteous. The Bible tells us that no one is righteous. Not even one. So we have this, this unrighteousness. So righteousness is right standing with God. We don't have right standing with God. When God looks at us, we are sinful creatures. We can't stand with God because he cannot be around sin. Why? Because we broke God's commandments. This puts enmity between us and God. But he, he fixed that. See, he sent his son, Jesus Christ, to become a man so that he could pay for the penalty of the sins of man. That he would die on the cross in our spot. Desiring to mend the relationship between man and God. So it's when we say, Lord, I am a mess. I am a mess. I confess that I have sinned against you. And I know that you are the ultimate authority. That it is you who have authority over earth and man. I want to put you back on the throne. I'm going to step down. I'm going to take myself off the throne and put Jesus back where he belongs. This is what it means to know God. And the Bible says that we will all stand in judgment before God. Every single one of us. And when when we put Christ back on the throne in our lives, this gives us right standing with God. This gives us the ability that that when we stand before God, he sees the righteousness of Christ. He sees the righteousness of Christ in us. Not because of something we did, but because of what Christ did for us. That's what it means to know God. But on top of that, we can't just know God, and that doesn't make us use this wisdom. We have to obey the scriptures. We have to obey what God tells us to do through the scriptures. See, if, if we know God, we know that he is the ultimate authority in life. And if he's the ultimate authority, then, then so is his word. So we have to obey the scriptures. So what is the result of this? If if we know God, we have put him on the throne in our lives, and we obey the scriptures, the result, as it says in verse 18, is a harvest of righteousness. A harvest of righteousness. Which essentially breaks down into this, a love for the Lord and a love for people. A love for the Lord and a love for people. So we're going to love God. We're going to love God. And we're going to love him with, you know, all our heart, soul, strength, and mind. Because we believe that he is the ultimate authority in life. That he deserves our love and respect. And everything that we do is going to be for God. And if we're doing that, we're also going to love people because his word tells us to love people. So we're not going to be acting as if it's all about us. We're going to say it's not about me, it's about God. And when it's about God, it's about others. We're going to love God and love people. And this means... That we're going to have the heart posture as seen in verse 17. I mean, it kind of comes full circle. The result is the heart posture, the result is us living the Word of God daily. The result is a heart after God's own heart. Andy Stanley. He's an author and a a pastor of a large church down in Georgia, and he wrote a book called Ask It. Ask It. And he says, in in this book, if you ask this one question, it'll change how you live. It'll change everything that you do. So instead of reading the 210-page book, I went onto Amazon and looked down at the reviews to see what that question was. And essentially, this is the question. This is the question. In light of blank, what is the wise thing for me to do? In light of blank, what is the wise thing for me to do? And he fills this with with my marriage. In in light of my marriage, what is the wise thing for me to do? In light of my financial situation, he has all these other things that he fills it in with. But for us today, for us today, I want to fill it with scripture. In light of what scripture says, what is the wise thing for me to do? And when we ask this question before we act, when when someone says something bad about us, if we think about this question and actually apply the question, it'll change how we live our lives. In light of scripture, What is the wise thing for me to do? Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. Your incorruptible word. Father, that has all authority. That your scriptures have the same authority of you because they are your words. We thank you that you loved us. That you desired to give us your scriptures. Father, I pray for a heart that desires to follow your words. That desires to follow what you have commanded us to do. That we may love you. That we may love others. And then at the end of the day, we'd be able to say, Father, it's not about me but it's all about you. Father, work on our hearts. Give us wisdom from above. Let us use the wisdom that you have given us through scripture that we may apply it and live our lives for you. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.